The doctrine of discovery is the current system of laws and policies that justify the removal of land from indigenous peoples. These laws are rooted in church doctrines that originated in the 15th century. Together, we will uncover this deep structure of colonization that systematically deprives indigenous peoples of human rights. I'm Sherry Hostetler, and I help start a coalition of Anabaptist people of faith that seek to dismantle the doctrine of discovery. I'm also a Mennonite pastor in San Francisco. And I'm Sarah Augustine, and I also help start this coalition. As an activist and scholar, I'm the descendant of the Tewa people and a displaced person. This is the Dismantling the Doctrine of Discovery podcast. In this episode, Sarah and I look how conservation and colonization have gone hand in hand. And we also talk about how conservation could be decolonized. So, Sarah, I wanted to lay out problems with how we've approached conservation in this country. And you're the one that first alerted me to this. And I was reading an article recently in The Atlantic. It was May 2021, and it was called Return the National Parks to the Tribes. It was written by a man named David Troyer, T-R-E-U-E-R. He's Ojibwe. And he tells the story of, you know, here I live in California, and he told the story of how in 1851, members of the California State Militia named the Mariposa Battalion became the first white men to lay eyes on Yosemite Valley. And this was a group that was actually mostly miners, and they were just awestruck when they saw these towering granite cliffs of Yosemite, and they were on, you know, it was awe-inspiring, and some of them were in tears. But they had come to Yosemite to kill the native people there. And the Miwok tribes, like many of California's native peoples who lived in Yosemite, they were obstructing this frenzy of extraction that we call the gold Co- the gold rush. And so the men of the Mariposa Battalion, they marched into Yosemite Valley and they starved the native Miwok by burning their food stores. And then they just outright killed others. And by the time that campaign ended, many of the Miwok who who survived had been driven from Yosemite, which had been their homeland for millennia, and forced onto reservations. And then 39 years later, Yosemite became the fifth national park. And even though it wasn't the first, it became sort of like the hallmark, iconic park almost from the beginning that was like this, this is why we need our national parks, this, you know. So, you know, we do love our parks, our national parks. They're sometimes called America's best idea, right? I mean, national parks are great, but as you know, and I know now, they were all founded on land that was once indigenous and many were created only after tribes were removed forcibly, sometimes by invading armies and sometimes following a treaty signed under duress. And in describing, this is um, the Ogala, Oglala Lakota spiritual leader, Black Elk, said that he was talking about both the creation of the parks and Native American reservations. And he said that the U.S. made little islands for us and other little islands for the four-leggeds. And always these islands are becoming smaller. <laughs> I know. So, you know, the parks are really founded as we were talking about earlier on this idea that there's this radical disjuncture division between people and nature. 
And the article I was reading said the parks were intended to be natural cathedrals, protected landscapes where people could worship the sublime. They offer Americans the thrill of looking back over their shoulder at a world without humans or technology. You know, that unsullied, pure wilderness idea. But in truth, the North American landscape has not been wilderness for at least 15,000 years and probably a lot longer because many of the landscapes that became national parks had actually been shaped by the native peoples living there for millennia. And in particular, Yosemite Valley's landscape was tended by um, native peoples. The acorns that fed the Miwok came from black oaks that had long been cultivated by the tribe. And so this idea that there's a virgin wilderness and Eden untouched by humans and devoid of sin is an illusion. And I know you know this because you told me about this dualism that is at the heart of conservation. So I'm wondering if you can just say more about that. Yeah. So, so first of all, dualism, from my point of view, is this idea that there, there's, you know, it's sort of this black and white idea of, of two categories, right? Um, and so, you know, the dualism at the heart of conservation really says that what is pure and natural um, are lands unsullied by humans and that they have to be uninhabited. Lands have to be uninhabited and set aside for recreation and science, but otherwise left untouched. And so in this dualistic idea, you have lands that are pure with no people, and then the lands that that we've sort of sacrificed that have people on them. So the degraded lands or any land that has come into contact with people, you know, we just, we say, Hey, you know what, this is, we're just sacrificing this. And then we're going to, we're going to preserve these pure lands. This model assumes that humans damage nature and will overexploit resources. And that model is really rooted in settler culture and not an indigenous culture. So there are people who have stewarded land and who haven't had extinction as their model. Um, as you say, for millennia, um, they've been protecting and stewarding and living in harmony or in balance with the land for untold generations. But under this conservation model, they're considered suspect. And as this model of conservation that was pioneered in the U.S. with the creation of national parks, um, as um, this model of conservation has flourished, uh, there is just a drive to remove indigenous peoples from their land. And uh, this model of nature conservation has been exported worldwide and it has influenced conservation policies in many countries. And so just to be really clear, conservation is a, is a big money proposition. (laughs) It is um, as, as far as um, philanthropic work goes, or um, uh, this sort of idea of, uh, the nonprofit world are doing good. Um, conservation is, um, internationally is one of the, the biggest dollar, um, kind of efforts. And so, um, and, and it, so we're talking about like, or, Oh, I'm sorry. Like we're talking about like the world wildlife fund and that's what we're like these big, Mm -hmm. thinking these big global NGOs, right. Right. That do conservation. And and, yes, they, they do conservation and they are funded often by, you know, USAID and large 
you know, f- funders who, who also have a, an agenda, right? And so, so when when mm-hmm. we when we have this model that says land devoid of humans is the real purpose of conservation, that is going to have a huge policy impact on indigenous peoples. So, and I'll give you an example. In Suriname, South America, where my husband Dan and I have been working for a long time in solidarity with indigenous peoples, um, we approached the World Wildlife Fund when they were creating maps. This would have been, oh, I don't know, in 2004 and 2005. They were creating these maps in the Guiana Shield of different trophic levels. So this is mapping the different parts of an ecosystem. So you have a layer for plants. You have a layer for single cell organisms. You have a layer for um, for for mammals and uh, for birds and et cetera. There are you know, multiple different layers because they're trying to map the biodiversity of the region. And the Guiana Shield is, um, has, has some of the greatest biodiversity of earth. And so there were no layers for indigenous peoples. So the indigenous people said, we would like to be on there. Why aren't we in your map? You know, because we're a layer. And the hmm. World Wildlife Fund said, well, we're the world world wildlife fund. We're not the world people fund. Um, and we, you know, we don't, we, <laughs> they would not acknowledge that human beings were, were in that. And, um, uh, they didn't say, but the intention is to remove indigenous peoples from the parks they're creating for conservation, even though indigenous people are living there. Um, and wow. so when we approached world wildlife fund, um, you know, at that time they were also building what's called a sustainable mining program, so, um, and to me, sustainable mining is really a funny idea. I mean, when I even heard those words together, I kind of chuckled because um, mining is a liquidation industry. You know, there's no sustainable way to mine. <laughs> and so I was really curious about what does this mean, the sustainable mining? And the idea that, that you know, that they shared is that we're going to create a reserve where we maintain the biodiversity and then all the rest of the region will be opened up for exploration or mining basically to, to invite, um, the large mining, um, companies to come in and mine. And so we, we said, Hey, you know, regardless of the reserve you're setting aside, the aquifer is shared by all, and it's going to be contaminated by mercury, you know, as, as mining is going on and cyanide and other toxic chemicals. And, uh, the people living outside the reserve are sick and dying from mercury pollution. And they basically said, well, you know, we're the World Wildlife Fund and we don't really, it's not really our concern what happens to people. And we, we've had the same conversation with the Nature Conservancy and, and they were really clear and said, you know, we're, we're, we are not the human conservancy. And so this assumes somehow that humans are not part of the natural world, that they are not part of the food web. And this is a very strange assumption to me. Um, we're not separate. You know, human beings are not separate from nature. Um, you know, unless you assume that we're aliens that came from another planet, we are from here. We are created beings. We're animals like every other animal. And we have our place in the ecosystem and in the food, food web, and we're not separate from the food web. And, you know, I've talked about this in other ways also, um, as you know, Sherry, um, my family lives on a, a sustainable beef ranch. It's an organic beef ranch in central Washington. And so one of the things we do is we conserve a ton of um, wildlife um, on our 200 acres, a pretty small place, but we have 
track the different biodiversity that we have, the number of birds, and I think we have more than a dozen species of birds here um, that that flourish here, as well as mammals, all different kinds. We have, you know, badgers and voles and, um, you know, we even see cougar and deer here. And because we have a natural place, um, it, it provides a space for animals to make their homes and propagate and, you know, be, live their lives. And so when, when we have groups come here and there are people who object to raising cattle for food, and I understand why, and I have no problem with that ethical issue, <clears throat> you know, it makes sense. <clears throat> and what I would say too, is that if we took this 200 acres and we put it into corn or soybeans, we would be destroying the habitat that the animals that live here depend on, and we would still be killing yeah. animals. Um, and so this idea that if you're, if you choose to be vegetarian or vegan, somehow you're separate from the food web is not the case. Human yeah. beings are part of the food web. Um, and so, um, this whole dualism is really, it's a very strange idea. And this idea that in order for us to have, you know, to have wild lands, people can't be on it is a very strange idea. Um, that, that has to be free of people. And it goes back to this idealized thought that land is only pristine when no humans have meddled with it. Um, that's definitely mm. through the lens of the dominant culture where progress is thought of as accumulation and extraction. And in that logic, the assumption is that humans will always be on that land as an extractive force. And so the lands we want to protect have to be protected from humans because humans equal extraction and e exploitation of nature. And this belief gets married to the belief that folks from the dominant culture are more highly evolved than native people and that native people are low and squalid. And so you wind up setting lands <clears throat> and setting aside lands and conserving it for the re recreation of the privileged, right? So, so we say, well, you have these sort of <clears throat> less evolved people who are not doing extract extraction on this land, but they're still, they're sort of ugly and we don't want to look at that. We need them to be out of there yeah. so that we can have these pristine lands and, um, and then, and those lands are going to be preserved so that, you know, the good people can come and recreate there. You know, one of the questions that I've heard a lot yeah. in the last decade or two is why don't people of color go to the wildlands when they're there for everybody? You know, this is, you know, part of our, our democratic nation, the, the national parks are owned by everybody. Why do only white people go there? In my mind, the fact is they weren't created for everybody. They were created as places of recreation for the privileged. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think I said in a recent podcast that I was recently in Death Valley and, you know, I would just encourage people to learn about who used, who are the native tribes that used to live in the national park that you're at uh, or the national monument that you're at. And I'm betting you're always going to find a story of those folks getting pushed off that land so that they could be places of recreation for the privileged, for the dominant culture. Another story that I have, Sherry, is, you know, also working in Suriname, um, there was an eco resort that was, they were putting in a resort in the rainforest and they, they had a concession with the national government to go in and do this. And, um, um, that it was considered to be a green and sustainable project. 
and they wanted the natives out of there in order for them to implement this project. What they did is they put up this big fence all the way around where the eco resort was going to go and push the native people out. And so we, we interviewed the land developers on film actually, and we took footage of, you know, the primary developer saying that, you know, the indigenous people weren't really people and that, you know, he wasn't really hurting anything by removing them. I mean, he even said, you know, they look at, look at their hands, you know, they look like monkeys. Um, and so, you know, the, basically we're living on the side of the road outside of the vents, fence squatting um, on the lands outside where their traditional home had been. And of course they didn't have land rights. This is all, you know, because, because of the doctrine of discovery, they don't have land rights. And so their national government is empowered to, to concess this land to whomever they want to concess it to. And so the developer said, I don't know what they're complaining about. You know, I've created jobs for them uh, because tourists can buy their crafts. And I don't understand why they're, why they aren't cooperating with me. And so just to take the pan back, I want to say that this kind of project is part of the UN development goals, economic development goals. um, And it's considered progress because you're bringing that community into the moneyed economy. um, And so what if their life is worse worse off in every way? They're earning a dollar a day. So they're in the right scheme of the UN development goals. And so this, this project of global economic development is is not necessarily to the way it's applied on the ground. It doesn't always equate to um, to a better life. You know what I mean? To increased health, increased uh, life expectancy, any of that stuff. It's just leading to being engaged in the moneyed economy. So this would be considered, you know, a successful project. You have an eco resort. People are going to come in from Europe and other parts of the world to enjoy that place, and they can buy the the handicrafts of the native people who now live in a slum outside the gate. Yeah, so, and let me see if I can repeat this back to you correctly, because this was really um, a a learning for me when... um, I was, when I was reading your book after you had written it and I was, you know, learning from, um, well, when I was reading your book. So basically these folks who had been living on this land that was now going to become an eco resort had not been, were not really in the moneyed economy. So they actually, is this true? They actually show up as sort of poor when you look at economic, when you look at like, you know, GDP or something like that, because these people actually aren't earning anything. So therefore there's this assumption that, oh, they're poor and they need economic development. Whereas in fact, they've been living their traditional life ways where they're living off the land and they're doing fine. Is that true? I mean, and then they get brought into the money economy when they're thrown off their land base and now have to basically sell their stuff or hire themselves out as laborers. I don't want to romanticize, you know, and say, oh, you know, there's this tranquil and perfect life. You know, life in the rainforest is hard and I, I don't want to over romanticize right. it. But I will say that 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 from my point of view, my vantage point, they were not better off after being put in the moneyed economy. Right. After being brought into the moneyed economy. And they certainly did not see themselves as better off. Right. Well, they were no longer living on their lands. Right. Exactly. <laughs> for starters. 
Yeah. Right. So I want to throw some statistics into this mix. I, I got these from the NGO cultural, uh, cultural survival, and they say that it's estimated that as a result of con- conservation policies, some 1 million square kilometers of forests, pastures, and farmlands were expropriated in Africa to make way for conservation. But uh, so, but there are not equivalent statistics for the number of people who were displaced as a consequence. Mm. And um, there's a testimony that they put in there of a forced relocation who came from, I'm probably not going to pronounce this right, from a um, a twa, a tribal person who was expelled from what became a national park in the Democratic Republic of Congo. This is in the 1960s, but as you've just said, this is ongoing. He said, we did not know they were coming. It was early in the morning. I heard people around my house. I looked through the door and saw people in uniforms with guns. Then one of them forced the door of our house and started shouting that we had to leave immediately because the park is not our land. I first did not understand what he was talking about because all my ancestors have lived on these lands. They were so violent that I left with my children. And just like you, the story you told, once they were thrown off their traditional lands and livelihoods, they were then living in a number of squatter camps on the fringes of their once extensive forest territory and they suffered what you can imagine, malnutrition, landlessness, demoralization, despair. And, um, and you know, accurate statistics for how many people have been displaced in that way in Asia are also lacking. But one estimate was that there might have been as many as 600,000 tribal peoples displaced by, displaced by protected areas in India. Statistics in Latin America are also unavailable, but Sources say that as many as 85% of the protected areas in Latin America are in fact inhabited by um, traditional folks. So the irony here, of course, is that indigenous people are widely recognized as being among the best conservation land managers on the planet, if we want to put it in Western terms. They're people who can live on and steward land, large tracts of land better than anyone else. Local indigenous communities basically steward 80% of the biodiversity in our world. And on the 25% of lands managed or owned by indigenous peoples worldwide, the ecosystems are healthier and biodiversity is even higher than in protected conservation areas. So Sherry, I want to go back just for a minute and and just expand on this story that I was just telling you about this tribe. I'm not going to name um, today um, who was ejected from their land in our, as we were watching it happen. And, you know, one of the things, one yeah. of the arguments they were making is they were saying, look, you know, if you dig into the soil even a little bit, you'll see, you know, our the shards of our cooking pots and all these things that have been there for generations. Mm. And this is not just simply losing um, access to um, their economy, which it is because this is how they make a living, is by collecting food and plants and hunting in the forest. But it's also their connection to reality because they are walking on um, their ancestors who, who have been buried in that right. land. And so the, the idea of removing them, it's just, 
out, it's, it's so outrageous. And as we were connecting with them, you know, they cannot understand it. They're saying it's so clear. That's our land. Our, you know, basically that's our stuff in there. And all you have to do is yeah. a little bit to see that, that that's true, that that's where our ancestors are buried. That's where, that's where yeah. our ancestors are buried always, you know, and now, and now we have no access to that. And so I, yeah. I want to say, you know, the, the stronghold Apache today, um, it's such a great example. So this is in Arizona, um, uh, where the Rio Tinto mine is being established. So right now there's discussion. I shouldn't say discussion. There is an order. The U S government has concessed, um, the, the, this land, um, for a copper mine, the largest copper mine in the history of the United States, I believe, um, and this is considered land to be sacred um, by um, by the stronghold Apache, um, the San Carlos Apache people, on at Oak Flat, where um, the San Carlos Apache are now struggling to maintain the fidelity of of their lands that they have they are entitled to by treaty as a place where they can go and worship. Um, this is now a national park, so they no longer. Um, have um that that land no longer belongs to them but they still have treaty rights to worship in that sacred space that land is now being exploited for copper by rio tinto um copper a foreign uh, mining company and so um the san carlos apache are the ones that are that are standing up and protecting that aquifer and i i just have to point out that that aquifer, the potential for that aquifer being contaminated by mining is so profound. I mean, we know that in mining, it's not a matter of if there's going to be a spill, but when there's going to be a spill. And this is endangering one of the most fragile aquifers in the United States, in Arizona, where you have people, not just the San Carlos Apache, you have people in Phoenix and Tucson that are dependent on that aquifer. Um, yeah. And San Carlos Apache are the ones that are defending it and yeah. trying to protect it. Um, <clears throat> you remember, may remember, Sherry, that this this deal was made um, f- for this land to be concessed in kind of a creepy way. Um, it was Senator McCain who put um, what what was titled a land trade with Rio Tinto on a bill that was, it was a bill fast-tracked by Congress. I think it was a military funding bill. And so this was just sort of written into the tail end and then passed as this big bill was, was, you know, sort of passed in on the coattails. And so, um, you know, it's extremely lucrative for Rio Tinto if they're allowed to, to drill. Um, I think they plan to drill down a mile underneath the surface yeah. um, and the, the, the amount of, um, destruction that is potentials just totally staggers the mind. But anyway, you see that, that the San Carlos Apache who have been, who have been there and, um, worshiping in this place and protecting this place are the ones who were still struggling for, for its fidelity. on behalf of everyone who lives there, because I just think of, you know, especially with climate change, the Southwest is 
just, just water is already like, you know, the lifeblood of the Southwest as it is everywhere, but especially in the Southwest, there's such scarce water. And now you're going to take the water that exists and threaten it with this copper mine and the San Carlos Apache are protecting that, you know, for themselves, but really for everybody. I mean, I also think how, um, and you've mentioned this to me, Sarah, that, you know, when this Ukraine crisis started happening, Biden started backing down on his no drilling policy, uh, no drilling for more oil, and so that we can have energy independence. Um, so, you know, it's it's frightening to what degree is is this whole crisis in the Ukraine just going to result in more extraction um, here in this country? I mean, yes. in this country and also around the world. I mean, um, the the leader, yes. the president of Brazil is is taking the same action. He said that this is a financial opportunity for, for Brazil because um, it's going to enable them to export um, more food than they've ever been able to do because there's a huge reserve of potash under the Amazon. Um, and he's mm. now trying to change the rules and policies, taking that out of environmental protection so that they can, so that they can mine that. Well, you were asking, how would we decolonize conservation? And from my point of view, the, a, a, a large way to do that is simply to acknowledge, um, well, how do I put this? The sovereignty of indigenous peoples, but, but maybe even sovereignty is not the right word, although we always want to empower sovereignty or, or self-rule for indigenous peoples. But to acknowledge that indigenous peoples have been stewarding those lands that we're now conserving from the start, and they might be the best decision makers going forward. Right. So, for example, if we were to take land use permits on federal lands and say, we are not going to issue a land use permit. This is the kind of permit you would get for drilling or for fracking. Um, the, the, the ultimate decision maker is going to be the tribe that's most impacted by it. And they are going to be the decision maker. Imagine how that would yeah. change the way that, you know, resource exploration and exploitation would happen. Hmm. I mean, I, and I, I know this sounds funny, but I mean, I really believe that um, that decolonization is climate justice and climate justice is decolonization. So we start with yeah. decolonization, which is to say we're going to we're going to change who makes the decision about this. And that would have the potential to to very much slow down um, the process of um, pollution. Right. <laughs> because if you have. Yeah. Indigenous peoples who are the primary decision maker, it's going to be a very different process and it might not end um, drilling, but it's certainly going to slow it down. Well, I'm also wondering about land return. You know, I mean, we have <clears throat> we have federal lands, um, not just parks, but federal lands that are held in common in the United States. And why would we why not return the control of those lands to indigenous communities? Um, they have an impressive track record in managing their territories um, and, um, why, why not ask native tribes to join, um, with federal officials in managing those lands? Um, and hmm. it makes sense because they're not coming from the worldview. Um, I can you know, not all indigenous people are the same, but, but it, it, it complexifies 
the um, the interests where the market based interests are not the only interests or maybe even the primary interests when you're thinking about how to um, manage land, right? So there are other interests mm, at play yeah. as well. And you are bringing in different worldviews that don't necessarily view progress in the same way or prioritize um, extraction as, or I should say, accumulation as the core indicator of progress, that progress could be something else. Um, progress is, um, could be viewed as conservation or as, um, uh, as preservation, preserving land and water um, as a form of progress instead of exploiting it. Yeah. Another um, another thing or ideal that is true for many indigenous communities is that land is not seen as a commodity at all to be conserved or to be exploited, but rather a, a spiritual being um, with whom we have a relationship, and that is is, is a completely different. You, you have a completely different set of decision making criteria when you are thinking about what's best for a spiritual living being instead of um, a set of gross commodities and whether or not to exploit them. And so I would say that, you know, that complexifies the conversation around what should happen on federal lands. For sure. My gosh, that would be amazing (laughs) to um, have folks who may be coming with that cosmology into this conversation about conservation and, 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 and having some decision-making power around that. Well, Sarah, is there anything else that you want to say around um, decolonizing conservation? Well, I guess I would just say in a decolonized approach to conservation, the observations of people living in the area would be given proper respect and systems would be in place yeah. to incorporate those observations into models. A lot of the models that are created now in terms of thinking through, you know, I'm talking about computer modeling that's done when you're, when you're talking about land management and so on. The, the, the variables that are in there, the variables that are, that are being mapped and modeled are not necessarily the ones that it's not the whole story, right? It's a model. So it's only looking through a certain lens. And um, when you engage people living in the area, particularly indigenous peoples, um, you are you are multiplying those variables and and you're going to have a different outcome. So <clears throat> you know, I, this is kind of an interesting it's a it you know i'm a I was trained as a social scientist myself, and um, one of the one of the purposes of you know the scientific method, is to create a, a linear, the most linear model by removing variables, you know, sort of testing things one thing at a time, um, instead of viewing a system through multiple lenses, um, which this other approach would do, um, uh, which is more consistent with an ecosystem-based approach. Um, so, and, and has the potential f- to provide, you know, a deeper understanding and in terms of thinking through what the outcomes will be. Um, as we are engaging in land use. Well, I, um, as um, I want to say, 
There's a lovely former Baptist woman in my congregation who says often, from your lips to God's ears. Um, may that be, <laughs> may that, um, I'm hoping, uh, may that, ha- may that be so it would be, um, our world desperately needs the change in conservation th- the, that you're talking about. And Sarah, I'm wondering, are you aware of places where there's, where this is actually happening at all, where the indigenous folks in that area are being, you know, brought in in these ways as decision makers and as people with a lot of wisdom to offer? I would say that in the United States, indigenous peoples are engaged superficially as one stakeholder of many um, as environmental planning is, mm-hmm. is, is happening. And I think that really has to change in and, and, and thinking through indigenous leaders or tribal governments specifically, which are, you know, um, elected governments um, uh, that are charged with um, determining the the path of their people, that they should be engaged as equals and not as just one voice of many in a room, but they could actually be core decision makers um, and I think that's really right. important. So I don't know of places in the United States where that's happening now. And that doesn't mean it isn't happening. I'm not aware of it, but I, I am aware of, you know, the Samdegi model, which goes on in Sweden and Norway, where the indigenous peoples there have their own parliament. And that parliament, which is elected, interfaces directly with the government's um, parliament of the dominant culture. And so those, it is much more of a peer-to-peer system of governance. So you can imagine what that would be like in the United States where what if we had an indigenous Congress? Of course, we do have group, we do have an indigenous Congress, but it's not acknowledged or engaged with by our federal government. And so what if we actually had um, in our constitution, the place for such a body? And so that there would be Mm -hmm. government to government relations, you know, at that level, it has been done in other nations in Sweden and Norway and Finland. And, um, you know, they, of course, have um, scarce resources there. Um, The the Sami people of Norway and Sweden and Finland um, depend on um, reindeer that that they herd up in the Arctic Circle. And um, those resources are diminishing year by year. And so there is a a frank and actual peer-to-peer conversation about how to preserve those places. From my point of view, of course, I'm not Sami, so I can't speak for them. From my my vantage point, it seems at at least uh, much more than anything that we structurally have here in this country. So, Sarah, I'm curious, when did these... Uh, you know, how did that come about? I mean, did did the Sami just always have their own Congress that was seen as a, you know, a peer government by um, the Swedish government? Or I'm assuming that was something that had to be fought for and won. That's right. And and, and it, it happened differently in each country uh, because there is a, a Sami parliament in Sweden and in Norway and in Finland, mm-hmm. and each one has their own history. And I want to say it began that movement began in the 70s. I think the Sami were recognized as an indigenous people in 77 in Sweden. And so um, I don't remember exactly when the Sami parliament was put into place in Sweden, but the, the Sami parliament in Norway was established in the the late 1980s. And so um, often these Sami parliaments are part of, they're a state agency, but also an independent um, body. 
And so um, they have the ability, the Sami people have the ability to elect their own representatives and um, and they they have the ability to interface in a government to government relations with the with the parliament of their nation, whether that's Sweden or Norway yeah. or Finland. Well, it's encouraging to hear that there's just a model out there of how this is happening somewhere. So, well, you know, when we went to Sweden several years ago, we went and visited the Sami parliament, which is pretty, it was, it was mm-hmm. an amazing thing to get to be able to do. Um, Dan and our son and I went to, to Sweden and we got to, we got to see that. It was fabulous. Well, Sarah, thank you for, um, for, bringing this con- conversation about conservation to me and to the listeners of our podcast. I really appreciate that. It's so, it's so great to, to be together, Sherry. I so appreciate the time we get to share together. Thank you. This podcast is hosted by us, co-produced by the DDFD Coalition and Anabaptist World. The opinions expressed here are ours, however, and do not reflect official positions of Anabaptist World. For more information, go to anabaptistworld.org and dofdmeno.org. Our theme music is by Micah Peplo and Shannon Kaler. Thank you.